Hello friends, how's it going? My name is Matt Barr and you are listening to Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast. It's the show where I try and cover the most interesting stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Thanks for tuning into this episode, I hope you enjoy. It's been a while, I've got to say I'm feeling a little bit out of practice. The last one of these I recorded for Looking Sideways proper was in August when I was in France for the Chris Burkhardt episode. I've released a couple of episodes of Type 2. In the meantime, the podcast that I make with my friends at Patagonia. Um, But I ended up taking one of those unscheduled breaks I occasionally do with the podcast, uh, which was much needed, I think. I've spoken about it a little bit here and there on the show. But uh, yeah, this summer was quite challenging from a mental health point of view for me. So a break was necessary. Um, I went to Normandy for three weeks with Peg and Lima which was really great, although it did take me about two weeks to unwind. Um, And then we've just had a really nice day in Devon and at Watergate Bay for a few days, which is where, segue alert, Watergate Bay that is, I recorded this chat with my pal and new performance pathway manager at British Surfing, Joel Gray. I've known Joel a few years now and he is a true, yes, lifer of British Surfing, as you're going to hear during our conversation. He came up on the incredibly tight northeast surf scene i've had quite a few people on the show i've got a lot of friends up there still never been unbelievable um anyway like all the best lifers joel managed to parlay his passion for surfing into a career um no no mean feat and uh, the way he did it's really interesting we we talk about that firstly through his coaching company surf solutions and now through this new role at the heart of the new british surfing project as they'd probably call it in the football world and as me and Joel are both football fans I'm going to use that phrase unapologetically if a little ironically anyway I've always intended to chat to Joel for the podcast at some point given he's such a stalwart and respected member of the UK surf scene uh, he's a natural fit I've had quite a few people say to me over the years you gotta get Joel on you gotta get Joel on um, so I always meant to and then I saw he taking this new gig So I dropped him a line and asked him if he fancied coming up on the show to discuss the new role and also all the issues raised by surfing in the Olympics and what it means for British surfing in particular as a grassroots and competitive culture. Now, before we dive into the actual conversation, and apologies in advance if this develops into quite a lengthy intro, but I'm going to give some context to the wider Olympic conversation in general and the British sideways Olympic story in particular. Now, I've been covering this whole thing since the mid-1990s when snowboarding was first included in the Olympics. And I've covered it on, uh, you know, from various positions, as you'll hear. In a nutshell, the debate is this. How can you reconcile the unique culture of action sports with the win-at-all-costs culture that drives the Olympics? It's, It's that simple, really. As Olympic gold medalist Kelly Clark neatly put it when I chatted to her for an episode of the show back in April 2019, action sports are about progression, the Olympics are about medals, that's the difference. That's what Kelly said. She's won Olympic gold medal for snowboarding, she's the most successful competitive snowboarder in history. I'm going to listen to Kelly and I don't think that anyone's summed up the dichotomy at the heart of this conversation more effectively or more pithily than that. Um, And that's basically been the debate from day one. It first played out in snowboarding 
um, and was epitomized when um, the International Snowboard Federation that at that point had run competitive snowboarding were basically booted out in favor of uh, FIS, who were granted the qualification process for snowboarding by the IOC, which meant the ISF went basically bust. And FIS, who'd spent the previous decade enthusiastically slagging off snowboarding to anyone that they could come across, suddenly found themselves being in charge of snowboarding. Now, that was 25 years ago. And I think it's fair to say that the debate has moved on since then. Um, and like I say, as a commentator, I've written about it a lot. I wrote about it in White Lines for pretty much two decades. I had a column about it in Transworld Snowboarding for years. I've covered it on the podcast for years. I also was an affiliate part of the, the main GB Park and Pipe snowboarding setup between 2014 and 2018 not you know as a freelancer um but when leslie asked leslie mckenna that is friend of the show asked me to help her develop a content and communication plan to help kind of square the the, the progression v medals circle um which is something that me and leslie discuss at length in the episodes that she's been on if you want to find out more about that um so that's a kind of bit of a bit of the context of the wider debate and my kind of role in that debate and my understanding of that debate and my interest in that debate. Now, the issues that were explored through snowboarding in the kind of late 90s and through the 2000s are now like are now being explored through skating and, and surfing, who've had one cycle, I believe. And we're kind of seeing a lot of the same debates unfold. We're seeing a lot of the same people involved. Um, and that's kind of where we are now really um if you followed me on instagram or have paid any type of close attention to the podcast over the years um you will know i've got very very strong views on this topic and this incidentally is why a couple of the comments i got on instagram when i posted asking for questions for joel made me laugh one guy in particular positive he was a middle-aged white guy who'd clearly never even given the topic any thought very confidently told me that the best thing we could do is ignore the whole thing and get back to the roots of action sports culture. That is a very common viewpoint. There's a lot of people listening to this, no doubt, will be like, who fucking cares? You know, they're not the same thing. That's fine. Um, but, you know, that was basically the mid-90s argument. Um, it's a little late for that if you are at all interested in this stuff, which is kind of what this podcast is about. And I am very much interested in that stuff. Um, but I do strongly feel at this point that that bird has flown um, and that things have moved on and that the approach shown by Joel and peers such as Lucy Adams and Leslie McKenna is the right one. And that was kind of my reasoning for getting involved in GB Park and Pike for that cycle that I did. It's better to be in the tent trying to influence things in a culturally positive and constructive way than being on the outside chucking stones. Um, that was certainly the approach that we tried in snowboarding. And there is still really amazing people involved in GB Park and Pipe and GB Snow Sport and across all the disciplines that are that are are as passionate and that are still doing that and that's that's brilliant. Um yeah, so I think anybody would say it's probably been a qualified success. I don't think the issues have ever really been resolved. I think ultimately it is a difficult circle to square. They are uneasy bedfellows. Um the Olympics is a purely performance-based environment and action sports aren't i mean that's that's the deal so they need careful handling 
And those issues, no matter how massively popular action sports get and how accepted these activities are in the Olympic family, as I believe we're obliged to call it, those issues aren't going anywhere. Um, and, you know, even just this summer, Mimi Knopp, for example, resigned from the US skate Olympic setup, citing concerns with the way that skate culture has been stewarded in that setting. Um, and I think you can find innumerable examples of that. So that's some context. And I'm really saying all that just to, just to set the scene for the conversation that me and Joel had and also to make an important point, which is I didn't want this conversation between me and Joel to be essentially a platform for me to take over the conversation and start ranting about my own personal views and experience. I mean, I do enough of that on this show anyway, right? I certainly do enough of that on Instagram and I certainly get told off for doing that a lot on Instagram. Even had the old um, stick to board sports mate chat recently from somebody, which also made me laugh. Um, so to avoid that, to avoid it just being me kind of like steering the conversation, I thought, actually, I'm going to remove myself a little bit from this. And as I just mentioned, I went on Instagram and I asked listeners to send in questions for Joel um, on the topic about anything they wanted, really, about his new role, his views on the Olympics generally, how he intends to tackle the cultural issues that we just talked about, grassroots re-performance, the issues of access and diversity, um, the skills gap that exists. I mean, let's be honest, we've had one person on the tour in British history and that's going to be quite a leap to to make British presence at the Olympics given the way it's working out to, to make that a, a, an ongoing thing it's going to be difficult and that's the the that's what's in Joel's in tray let's just say um, the response to my call for questions was brilliant even the lad who said what he said um, uh, so I just thought I'd use these as the basis for my chat with Joel um, so that's what I did and that's what you're about to listen to. So massive thanks to Joel. Big thanks to Owen for the picks. Everybody who sent in questions on Instagram and my pals at Watergate Bay, plug alert, for hosting me, Boog and Peg, on this trip and for our 10th anniversary. Thank you. It's very nice. Um, that's as close as I get to an advert these days. Anyway, here's me and Joel inside the tent. Enjoy. So I think we'll just keep it, keep it pretty, pretty simple. Do it that way. Um, but how you doing, man? You're right. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. You've, pretty had a, you've had a surf already. Pretty stoked. I had a surf this morning. Probably should have done a couple of other things, but you've got to sort of balance yourself off. I thought I'd have a quick surf. Fifteen yeah. minutes, three waves. Just down at Aggie. Yeah, good. Wasn't very good, but it, it was good. To yeah, I've had a surf. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I might, might battle. Battle with the foamy layer. <laughs> There's definitely waves. Yeah, it's definitely waves. I mean, it's the old Brighton tax for me. So whenever, I, you know, like it would be, I mean, I say this so often, I know people must get bored of it, but it, that would be at like one of the days of the year in Brighton. <laughs> I think, yeah, I still have that, like, because I grew up on the East Coast, like Tynemouth, Newcastle, it's still totally ingrained. Like if there's, if there's waves, you just surf. Yeah. You just surf. Yeah. Still hasn't quite left us. No, exactly. And um, it's funny when I take mates to surf in Brighton, you know, that, that surf like decent weight, and they're always like, what the fuck? Like, are you, are you lot serious? But I kind of like it more almost, the fact that it is just pretty shitty and, you know, but still everyone's still as keen. And like, yeah. it's a bit 
kind of bit more camaraderie to it almost well that brings us into the first question pretty nicely so i've got my phone out because obviously i put a thing on instagram yesterday asking for questions and got a load of questions which is really good so i'm going to start with a question from um someone who lives in aggie actually Ooh. yeah um well it's a simple one badlands or northeast Badlands and Northeast, it's quite a good question. Good starting question. So obviously I live in St. Agnes, which... Which for non, non-British um, listeners is, is the Badlands. So yeah, it, it the, the doesn't nick- get that sort of name much anymore. But, but it's, that, the, it's the old name, isn't it? You yeah, know? that's the traditional yeah. Badlands, sort of St. Agnes, Porth Town, Chapel, all around that zone. But um, totally from Newcastle, grew up there. That was where surfing birth was. Um, and yeah, Badlands or Aggie. Well, I live I live in the Badlands, but I definitely still call Newcastle home. Yeah. So, what took you down there originally? Um, it was pretty much. So I'd had basically at the time I was in Edinburgh with my ex, and she got a, she was finishing a vet degree. I was doing like surf coaching stuff. And at that time, most of my surf co- coaching was taken based on taking surfers away from the UK. So right. I was doing like trips, Australia, Hawaii, Bali, wherever. And that was the sort of the, the main impetus of that. But um, my partner at the time, she was, she just finished a vet degree and was like in farm stuff. So it was essentially we had to find somewhere that she could do that work somewhere rural yeah somewhere surfing so it's pretty much i remember she was kind of applying for jobs in cornwall or wales right and i would have been happy with either yeah, and then yeah. we kind of stumbled on essentially she got a job in truro right and um we're looking around and i know i knew cornwall pretty well i've got good i used to have a caravan up in constantine harlan way yeah um and i went to university in plymouth but i really didn't know st agnes i kind of knew its rep as the Badlands. Yeah. So I was definitely a bit wary of that. Right. So, but essentially that's why I moved down and we found a little cottage in Midian, cool little hamlet. And I remember getting through the winter, the first winter. I remember getting to like April and was like, I think that was it. Like there was, <laughs> it wasn't even like a frost. Yeah. And I didn't put a hood on. And yeah, I quickly sort of realized that Aggie was a, pretty beautiful special place to be yeah and yeah it's fortunate enough to be able to get a place in the village and been there for like 10 11 years now well we were just saying before we started recording you know because obviously there's a big conversation in Cornwall right now about how much it's changing like how gentrification is coming in there's that really great podcast which I was bang on about the reason why by Seamus Carried and if you've listened to that but it's it's like um you know, all the issues that are coming. But you were just saying that Aggie still feels like it's, it's it, there's a, still a bit more of a traditional kind of community there maybe. That's yeah, I think so. There's definitely been change even in that short time I've been there. I, I've probably been part of that change, you know. But essentially you've got like quite a lot of medics with like money, but they're sort of young, kind of fun thinking, not necessarily career-driven ones. Yeah. Um who've got money, obviously, and then there's, like, sort of the hipstery crowd, which have definitely been trying to get in, like, a lot of creatives and stuff, which definitely brings its own 
you know, super positive energy. And then for sure, there's still the old core, like families. Yeah. And for me, it's, 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 it's pretty healthy in that it feels like it still, maybe rules the wrong word, but it's still, there's still the presence for me is the old, like, Cornish crew that they're still at the top of the hierarchy. Yeah. Definitely in terms of the surf, which is a, a real positive. But even just the sort of village life, you know. Yeah. It's, but it's it's a thriving village for sure. It definitely doesn't feel like a holiday home village. Um, everything's open all year round, pretty much. It's loads of pubs, restaurants. It's a it's a good place to be. Yeah. And you mentioned the northeast, obviously. Um, Love it. Yeah. I've still never been. Which, oh my goodness! I know, Gabe. Every time I said that to Gabe, he's like, "Well, you haven't been to Newcastle. You haven't been to." I've not been to Northeast. Never been. Oh, I know. It's amazing. It's a shocker, isn't it? Um, I'm going to try and get up there in the spring, I think. Um, but you know, got a lot of friends up there, and that community, that surf community up there, seems, even for British standards, pretty tight knit, like pretty close. You know, how was it growing yeah. up as part of that community? Yeah, it was. It was amazing. It was. It was, um, I feel super fortunate. So basically, I grew up in the, in the city of Newcastle, um, which is like 12 miles from the beach. Right. Um, zero surf culture. And I kind of stumbled into surfing, essentially because I watched Big Wednesday on right. the telly. And then... Yeah, my pathway into that was watch Big Wednesday on the telly with a mate, and then I was going to a cousin's wedding in America, in Rhode Island. Right. And they were like, oh, Joel, when you go to America, you'll have to like, do surfing and that. And I was like, well, I definitely will. And I uh, <laughs> sort of definitely didn't, but I probably like bodyboarded and came back, and I was like, I've seen surfing, and we're going to do it. Right. And there was like a windsurf shop down in Biker, and we got talking to them, and they hooked us up with like a surfboard or something. And we were basically, me and me mate, Nathan Chisholm, who I started surfing with, um, we like shared a shark skin wetsuit and had one board and my mum and dad was taking us to Whitley Bay, like just begging for lifts like whenever we could. How far is that? It's like 15, 20 minutes. Right. And we were pretty much the only people. We just kind of didn't see another surfer, right? Right. And then there was one day when we drove past Tynemouth. I mean, my dad must have decided to drive a different way. And oh my God. Like, we were at the windows, we looked out, and there's, like, 30 people in, like, fluoro gold wetsuits and cool wave graffiti surfboards. And it's like, what, what, stop the car, stop the car, stop the car, we'll be going the wrong place. This is, like, unbelievable. And then quite quickly, you know, so we were total beginners, totally self-taught, and at about 13 years old, and there was a whole bunch of surfers, like Gabe Davies, Sam Lamaroy, Ian Hussey, Trevor Smeaton, who were all, like, they were similar age, but they'd all been surfing for a few years. And yeah. were like good and on short boards and knew where to get them. There's yeah. no surf shops at this point. And we quickly attached to them. And right. there was a ready-made peer group. Yeah. And that was like, right, time off's the place to be. Yeah. So that was it. That was, that was it. And it was a very healthy community then, even more so for, for a number of reasons than now in that... There was little communities, so there was surf, there was like a East Coast surf tour. Yeah. So there was like a, an event in Tynemouth, one in Saltburn, one in Scarborough. Even we're linked in with the Scottish ones in Aberdeen and um, Pease Bay in Edinburgh. And we'd do those events and 
they were competitive and the guys above us, like Davy Stores and people like that were just at a totally different level. And in above them, we had Veach, who was on the world tour at that yeah. time when I, when I started. Yeah, which so, is still, I mean, Gabe talks about that a lot when I chat to him for this. And that, I mean, it's still pretty wild, really. It's totally, yeah, it's, 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 it is totally wild. And you know, it's really cold in time off East Coast in winter time. You're not gonna do it by yourself. Like I wouldn't yeah. have kept it up if I didn't have this whole bunch of people. Do you think that's what promotes that, without harping on about it, the fact that everyone's so close? Because, I mean, you know, whenever I sort of see, like, you or Lewis or Sandy or, like, you know, the people, there's there's a real camaraderie, there's a real closeness of shared experience. Do you think that's where it comes from, the fact that it is basically a bit more committing, a bit tougher? I think so, and it was like... Yeah, I think so. You know, it's not, e- it's not easy, but it's, it doesn't mean it's bad. It's like... It's like super fun, all the all the tough times, and there's no surf reports back then. Like I would jump off school and get the metro down. So quite early on, a mate Johnny Piercy, his mom said I could leave the stuff at his. So right. then I didn't need to rely on my parents or Nathan's parents, and we had a key, so I could go whenever I wanted to bunk off school and get the metro down. And there's this one, I mean, I still know the two little bits where you can get a glimpse of the sea. Right. For like two seconds, you can see across the South Shields and I'm like, oh, there's waves. Oh, damn it, I think it's flat. Yeah. And then, um, you know, all that, all that sort of stuff. So then the times when there's waves, it feels so like valuable and important and you're definitely surfing all day and the wetsuit's rubbish. And I remember I would come in and would mark on the wetsuits where, where you had a hole, so you'd dry it out and then, you know, you were black witching, gluing it in between sessions and making your own kidney belts to keep warm. And yeah. It was a cool time, man. Yeah. And produced a lot of really good surfers as well. Really good surfers. And they were, you know, like, so my generation had really good surfers above it. Like, it wasn't the first. Like, the Stores Brothers, Hudson, they were all, like, really schooled in at quality waves as well. So... At that time, we'd, I don't think we knew we had good waves on the doorstep, but they, they were leading the way in that every summer they were going to Bali and they were exploring around the world and it was all about good waves and surfing good waves well. That was, that was the most important thing. Yeah. So that was the sort of philosophy that so was you had the good role models. down to us. Yeah, to, to make it about and then, good surfing rather than just surfing. Yeah, exactly. And then there was this like competitive scene and... Gabe and Sam in particular were attached to that on the national level and getting good results, like winning. So they were going, going away. And even I can remember we had like, like the North Tyneside would put on a minibus and would be like, would take that minibus down or someone would drive it and would go and do the nationals. And like Gabe would win or Sam would win and we'd drive back and it's like, whoa, that's sort of pretty good here. Yeah. But we were never on the level of those guys, but... I sort of feel like the whole group thing, and I might come back to this later, the whole group, like, we definitely weren't as good as Gabe or Sam, but the, definitely that whole unit enabled them, you know, that, that pushed them, yeah. for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why I mentioned it. Same, but equally, it's a lot of partnerships still there, isn't there? You know, you need, especially if you're going to shoot, like, you know, you need 
someone like Lewis who's as committed as every. Do you know what I mean? Like, is yeah. It kind of requires that whole that that, that number of dedicated people to also almost make that scene bigger than some of its parts in a way. Do you know what I mean? Like it. it yeah, it, you're and right. It, and it really comes across, I think. And and yeah, you're right. Totally. It, and it takes knowledge and like experience and time, and it's risky in terms of going to different places other than the ones you know and all that stuff. Um, and yeah, there's those little hubs, like the surf shops were, were obviously really important, which is, it's not, they're not as important, I guess, now with like social media and all yeah. that sort of stuff. But in the time before the internet, they were like, they were crucial. Well, I love that about you, your mate's parents giving you a key. Because yeah, like, you need those little things, don't you? Game Espe- changer. Like when, especially, you know, we're a little bit older, so when it was less well known, you know, because you know, I, I, I had a mate, well, my best mate, his parents used to lend us his, like their car so we could go to the dry slope, so we could go snowboarding. Like, and, and they, you know, thinking back, they basically lent like our 17 year old mate, we were all 15, like the, their car, and that was all just, you know, think, yeah, we, and we were like, yeah. oh yeah, this is normal. Like, but without that, like we wouldn't have been able to go and do that and probably wouldn't have ended up doing what we're doing. So you, you kind of need those little, little things, don't you, that, that kind of make it. Yeah, totally, and they definitely were like, the other surfers you know i didn't know them socially so i still as day i've got like my oldest friends from like the city and that i went to school with now, there's definitely some crossover but then like my surf friends it's detached but they were definitely super welcoming and i can even remember really early on when we weren't very good like me and nathan were sort of the the newish ones out of the crew and they had like the they were going to do the comp and they put on like a special novice division like just for me and him little right. things like that was yeah. like wicked yeah I, I won that one yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, right I've got to read one of them out because it's obviously Good, a mate yeah. of yours he's giving you some shit <laughs> question for Joel has he used the double arm pull claim since his famous <laughs> claim back in the day um, you, you must know you're going to have to right. bleep out yeah that S word there <laughs> <laughs> The I location. Can, I, can, I can bleep it out. But um, yeah, have I, what? What was the question? I know exactly the claim he's on about. Have you done it again? Have you done it since? Definitely, <laughs> definitely. So what happened there then, and why is he sending a message about it? Because there like was fifteen um, years later. A guy, Johnny Eldridge, who you probably know. I know John. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. did a series of surf vids, and one of them he had a section on one of our honeypot waves yeah. firing, and I've got a. I reckon I've got a mint barrel in it, but it's totally <laughs> eclipsed by me double arm. Sort of like power claim as I come out. Yeah. Well, another mate was like, because obviously we're going to talk about the coaching, you know, the, the, the GB surf, the British surfing stuff and, and your career path. But another mate of mine was like, you know, I don't want to wear this performance stuff. I want some Northeast tails. <laughs> I want the underbelly tails. Any, anything stand out though from, from them years you know that, that when you when you look back on it um well like so much and i still it, it still doesn't feel like it's all in the past like i still i've i've definitely so going back to that badlands or like the northeast question i'm i've definitely consciously made an effort and naturally wanted to like stay connected so i still try and get up for when I can, and yeah. swells. Obviously, me folks are still up there. Um, but in terms of tales from the past, 
I don't, I don't really Come, know. If anything springs to mind, open question. Yeah, okay. Um, so you mentioned the coaching and you yeah. mentioned that you, you said you were up in Edinburgh, so I guess with what, 15 years ago? And you, were, you already had it going on then. So how did that come about? So that came about, basically, I did, I went to university in Plymouth. Did, did you do the degree? I did geography. All oh, right, you didn't do the no, Mickey do Mouse the, surf didn't, degree. No, I did a pr- <laughs> real good one, mate. BSC. <laughs> You did um, a proper one. What'd you get? Love science. What'd you get? Two one. Two one. Good Stat- lad. Same. Could, could have got a first, but, but you decided know, not to. Decided probably. to work on me bottom terms. Yeah, exactly. I was the same. I was like, "Well, it looks like a lot of hard work. <laughs> I might, I might just but aim, did, aim my sights a bit lower." I did that, and basically, I did that because I left school not really knowing what I wanted to do. Bit of a floater. I had a year out where we went around like Australia and Indonesia, and. I did geography largely because I had a really good couple of A-level teachers. Yeah. Kind of inspiring in that way. And I was like, oh, it felt like someone that was keeping me options open. So I did geography degree. By the end of that, I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. I actually applied to do a um, jet program teaching English in Japan. I was quite excited about doing that and going to Japan. But then my dad actually persuaded us to apply to do PGCE, the teaching degree back in Newcastle. Yeah. I, and I, so I applied and I got the interview and I really didn't kind of wasn't interested. But again, the guy who essentially interviewed me, the tutor, a guy called David Leet, he's really big into thinking skills and teaching thinking, was like, I basically came out of that and I was like, oh, I want to do this. This right. guy's like switched me on. So I did that and then I taught full time for like, two and a half years in Newcastle, secondary, teaching geography in like an inner city school. And I was pretty young at the time. So there was all sorts of challenges and rewards and yeah, right. a whole podcast involved in that. Hip, hip surf teacher, mid-twenties. Like, yeah, but there's no like hip surf you know teacher I mean, though, in like, inner city what, what I more mean, What school. I more mean is like, you're going to stand out as a young teacher. Totally. And you know... Not, like, that they're, not that they're going to be impressed by that, but they're going to be like, all oh, right, who's this guy? Exactly. Like, <laughs> surfing was, was, wasn't anything I could play on, but you had the advantage of, I, was go, I got the match every weekend, so I could have legit footy banter. Yeah. But likewise... Which is funny, you make a joke, but that is kind of, for a British bloke, good thing to have in the locker. Definitely in a school <laughs> every, like that, it was Every now crucial. and again. <laughs> but likewise, too young to have any natural authority. Yeah. I'm still not like a booming authority I'm figure. just thinking back to like the law of the jungle that my school was and well you know young young teachers coming in and just getting destroyed well and yeah and it, it I had a good crew but it was it was hard it was, yeah it was like hard and I felt that it was like kind of physically zapping us a bit yeah and I'd always planned to have a year out so I, I was on a permanent job but I left that and then had a year out where I went around the world New Zealand Australia, Samoa, and all these places. And that's when I realized, like, whoa, I had, like, a breath of fresh air back in my lungs. And right. I was like, I need to do more of this sort of stuff. So my pathway, sorry, into coaching is uh, in New Zealand. I did a winter season at a little resort called Porter Heights. All oh, right, where's that? No, I heard that it's, one. like, the closest to Christchurch. Sure. It's not one of the club fields. It's, like, the first one that's not quite a club field. Yeah. Um, and I worked in the cafe. I got super fat. I ate loads of like deep fried chicken nuggets and cookies that winter. But at the end of that <laughs> season, I did my like, like snowboarding was just cool. Like I surfed, but snowboarding was like kind of fun. Like, yeah, but I can rip, I can go super fast. I'm mint at this. 
so that box is ticked, right? Let's, let's do an instructor thing. So I did it at the end of the season, um, like a two week course and, and I failed it, but it was really good. It was like totally enlightening. And right. that was like the concept of there's a, there's a correct way of doing things and you're not doing it right. Yeah. And there's a way of doing it right and all that. I was like, whoa. Well, you've said, you've said a couple of things already that are quite interesting. You know, you said you're inspired by the, by the, the PGC guy, maybe, who taught yeah. you about ways of thinking, you said. Yeah. And then you've just mentioned that. So it feels almost like, do you see, intellectually, there's something you find really rewarding about this, this whole process of like how you, you know, turn, how you can turn that into an out, a positive outcome. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm being clumsy with the way I'm expressing it, but I think you know I'm getting at, right? Like, there's obviously something that struck a chord with you where... Yeah, definitely. And, so, you know, I could have, like... I was, p- like, pissed that I didn't pass this course because I wanted to work as a snowboard starter, but it, it switched us on. So then the next winter, I did... I started and went started going through the Basie system. Right. And I didn't Bas- realise all this. Right. Yeah, so, so I did that, and then I got a job in Andorra, and... Even then, I was like, I was switched on to like the technique of all. I was like, yes, this is totally good. And like the, the realization that it's more than just fun, I guess, or it could be, or it could be even more fun. There's more depth to it than that. And I remember, right, I've said this tale to a few people. The first day going into the snowboard hut is a pretty cool snowboard hut for the school in Andorra. And it had a good reputation as a snowboard school then. And I remember going in and just thinking, yes, it's going to be lush, like, Where's, where, where, where we're going to get with free drinks from, like, definitely going to be scoring loads of chicks this season. Like, that's my vibe, da la la Yeah. And the, the chat was, like, I was basically totally impressed with the chat from day one where people were talking about, like, no, nah, no, nah, there's no way, like, initiating knee steering rather than torsional in the steeps is, like, the thing. And, whoa, and this is the sort of chat that was happening, like, drunk in bars. And I was like, wow, this is, like, next level. And real quickly, I was like, boom, I, I want to I take this to surf. Right. And it, it wasn't, it's still it's hardly existing, but definitely then there was minimal people doing that sort of stuff. So how do you describe it? Like almost a bit more of a biomechanical approach Yeah, to exactly, it. exactly, exactly. And like still now people are like afraid to say, oh, that's not, you know, that might be like super fun turn and kind of sick, but it's not, you know, it's not correct. Yeah. I think there's like fundamental moves and even that discussion's not, there's not a book on it. No. But there is in sort of a lot of the snowboard and stuff at foundation level. And so I spent, I then re- essentially spent the na- next decade sort of going through that and trying to work out stuff myself and right. studying it. And obviously loads of people do that, but I had that. To translate it into like... Yeah. What you do, basically, yeah. like how you can apply all that thinking to a way of coaching. And the snowboarding, so I kept going through that and we got my like license to work in France. So I was one of those first bunch, there's like 15 of us yeah. got the license to work in France. And that all felt, yeah, if, you know, to get that, you did some courses that felt valuable and it just felt like, like that system pumps out. I think like real qualified and empowered yeah. sort of instructors and teachers and coaches and that doesn't exist still in in surfing for sure. It's a different thing. Yeah. Like I remember doing like the common theory course up in Scotland 
like you're nowhere even near snow just in the classroom just learn about biomechanics and yeah it's like well surfing doesn't have its own set of rules when it comes to planes of movement and stuff yeah surfing i mean i was talking to a mate about this the other day like there's so much about surfing is is almost about like you have to demystify yourself you know like as, yeah. as a and it's quite interesting isn't it there's all these courses these days that are sort of you know they're kind of aimed at people like me you know like really average intermediate middle-aged surfers i'm thinking of stuff like that on base surf or you know there's there's loads of like people on youtube or whatever and it's all about almost like like demystifying it in a really quite basic way like you know like okay think of it this way and it'll make it easier but it's almost done in a way of like undoing mistakes rather than like building you up from the beginning do you know what I mean whereas like if you look at something like snowboarding as you say it's not it's not really like that if you do if you get instru- if you get lessons or instruction they, they do try and start with those fundamentals and and kind of give you that good foundation which is kind of interesting really isn't it I wonder if it's and I'm just thinking about this for the first time but I wonder if it's to do with the whole arm's length part of surf culture do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, definitely. And I mean, there's definitely some of that. And it's just, it's for sure behind on a sort of coaching level, in t- not just in terms of like the awards, but in terms of people buying into that. It's there's probably been a bit of an explosion, hasn't there? And yeah, forty year olds wanting to get a bit better. Yeah, but but there's not the, yeah, there's not the knowledge base really in terms of people knowing what how to do that. Well, I'm just thinking, you know, massive sweeping statement, but you tend to have people that grew up surfing that can surf, mm-hmm. or you, and then you've got people that learn late who are really struggling. Yeah. To, or then you've got people who've, who've started late, kind of got it to a certain point, but if you're going to improve, then you're going to need some pretty serious help because you've got so many bad habits. Can't really yeah, think, totally. Can't really think of any more constituencies of it, really. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's, there's, that's kind of it. When you, especially in this country and that's that yeah like set, like people are gonna surfing's just fun right even if you're doing it bad yeah and if you get that's one of the challenges with coaching if you get if you've got a limited number of waves and you're battling a crowd and you're trying to work on someone trying to get someone to work on someone and they get the set of the day yeah oh it's pretty hard to then work on whatever they were trying to work on you just want to enjoy the set of the day because that's sort of the best, most important thing about surfing well, as well. I, I think I totally find that. I mean, whenever I go to the wave, which, you know, again, for someone like me, is brilliant because they get like 15 yeah. waves or whatever. Or they're all the same, basically. It's really hard, though, to push yourself and because you, cause you're just like, ah, it's kind of fun just cruising around, really, you know. Um, and you sort of feel like you're almost not wasting it. But like you say, to actually push yourself to do it, it does require... A bit more commitment, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. It's that like I often say that well, I'm not the only one, but like practice makes permanent. It doesn't make perfect. So people who've never had any directed coaching technique, technically, then they they've got permanent yeah issues. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've definitely got structure. some of that. <laughs> well, every time I see myself, I'm like, I'm always like, oh my god. That's, that's not good. Um, go, shall I, if I finish that off then, so with that, I then set up Surf Solutions yeah. with Gabe, who you've had on here, Gabe yeah. Davies, East Coast legend. And 
we initially it was how do we do it we were essentially doing it kind of like a bit like basically private stuff and we were picking up people from hotels and we did some like junior little camps but it was some total beginners but it didn't matter what level it was using the same approach of like what are the issues how do we get better what's the specific feedback we're given in this session and you know it was pretty intensive and then essentially Gabe got a bit tied up in other other sort of stuff and added some of the stuff with some juniors and I just really switched on and started started doing that and I got a got the voluntary gig doing like the British junior team for a little while and then and that was like 2005 and sort of ever since then I've worked with most of them on a kind of private private basis yeah and have different peer groups yeah. under my Surf Solutions banner and when I moved to Cornwall that was when I could get a base so I have like after school crew in New yeah. Key, St Agnes at the time down a bit in St Ives and had my cork people that I work with yeah basically let's hold that thought I just want to finish one quick because I, I keep looking at my phone um, with these questions so there was a there was a lad actually one of the questions was he wants to get into coaching at an elite level you probably saw that one and yeah. the thing, you've kind of covered how you got into it that was the classic like what advice would you give to somebody what to do what you're doing so we might as well go into that yeah you know? it's it is a good question and that's definitely a one that i want to do in this role in my yeah. role as british surf and that once i want to have that legacy where we need, there wants to be a pathway for that yeah because i see there is as a well gap. as for the surfers themselves yeah, yeah exactly like that maybe dipping into other issues but essentially the main issue we've got or the main target is improving the level of our surfing we're not quite good enough for the yeah. for the aims at the moment you know yeah. limit qualification getting on the ct etc etc like it might happen but we need to improve the level and at the core of that i just see coaching as being a, a huge thing and there isn't a structure at the moment and there's definitely some people doing really really good work and there's some really really passionate people um but how do we how do they get better and how does this person do it yeah and because as you just described I don't you, really have the answer well there's no the set path as you've just described i mean the path that you've just described to me about how you got into it is really not what i was expecting no. i don't know what i was expecting but well i had a thing when i did a presentation with a job and it like, a little bit and it's slightly tongue-in-cheek but i was a little bit like if we want coaches Obviously, you can bring in like experienced internationals who've done a lot of events and stuff like that, and that's that's definitely an option, and we'll probably do some of that. But in terms of developing, there would be an argument. I feel like I could present an argument for cross training, like people from that snowboard system who've got that knowledge and just yeah. transferring that to surf rather than up in hours. Yeah, yeah. If that makes sense. For on the coaching I, side, you mean? On the coaching side, I don't. Yeah. I don't think that's in the that's the answer, but just sort of tongue in cheeky a little bit. Well, it's tongue-in-cheek because it kind of links to a, a, a another point, which I'm sure we'll get to in terms of like how important cross-pollination is to achieve the goal that you yeah. described, you know, which is basically raise the level of British surfing, isn't it? Let's yeah. call it that. So, But, but, but like, all, you, you know, I, one of the things, so I've learned from some other coaches, so I have had involvement with people, like I did used to go to Australia at their high-performance centre, like did that for a few years. And I've been on the side with some stuff. But the reality is that's one of the issues which there's very little chat 
So that is one thing that we'll try and have an impact on in the next sort of year where we'll create some groups where the active coaches yeah. are at least communicating. Across the disciplines, you mean? Yeah, because yeah. pretty much people don't talk. Like each, it's almost, and it, you see it at events, you know, everyone has their crews and even their training crews and everyone, it's as if everyone's working on their own like sort of secret little remedies and methods. And there's not, people aren't chatting really about what, what you're doing. That's what I thought was so brilliant. My first introduction to Snowbone was like, you know, obviously it's a different environment. We all work for the same school, but like, oh, I can't get this. Like, this is sharing the knowledge, basically. Sharing the knowledge. Yeah. That's so from a, from a f- first point like that. Like you- I've had loads of people ask me to come and like, can they come and shadow and sit in? It's a really interesting point that, because obviously one of the key parts of this whole discussion about, I'm, just, I'm not even going to limit it to surfing, but, you know, these activities, surf, skate, snow, and the Olympics is how you reconcile the kind of cultural argument with the with the performance argument, let's put it that way. But I think that coaching side of things that you talk about is probably where we could learn a lot from the more performance end of sport. Because if you look at, you know, it's really common for like a basketball coach to go and hang out with Pep Guardiola, for example, and go and check yeah. out his training and see what he, like that's just a common thing and that's yeah. just a that's just a shared knowledge like you say at the top end and and people being open enough to those ideas isn't it whereas i think we probably have a bit of an in, an instinctive suspicion of that almost on a cultural level which yeah is, no you're right and like, like we're definitely going to do some stuff like specifically with the skate and snow crew yeah and years ago i did something like me and Ben Kinnear, kind of privately, we did a couple of camps of like where we had some snowboarders and some surfers together. Yeah. We did a few days at the at the beach. The surfers, the snowboarders, kind of learned to surf a bit. Yeah. And they watched how we trained. We did some generic kind of strength and conditioning, some pool work together, and then we went to the mountains. And it was super valuable for the snow. So the surfers, I just saw them watching intently, like not just how mentally good the snowboarders were, and like whoa like the feedback sessions after like how they learn and what they were doing and it's definitely not the same but it's there was stuff for sure they stuff took to, away. to take away yeah stuff yeah. to learn isn't there and like you say i can completely understand why you would look at that just as a useful tool almost you know if you're gonna yeah because the goal you've just outlined there essentially how do you you know in inverted commas improve british surfing to to get to achieve these goals like like I say, from a performance level, but also balancing the cultural considerations, let's put it that way, it's obviously a big mission. You know, I can see why the role was really appealing because it, when you take all the experience you've accrued over these like 15 years and, you know, you've really sort of explained your thinking behind it, you know, there's clearly a philosophy behind this and, and the set of ideas yeah. that have underpinned this. I can see why that challenge is, is a big one. No, it is a big one, and that coaching one will be sort of long term. And but the end point, I just see there as being a big gap, like even globally. And like, why can't we have the best surf coaches in the world? Yeah, like for sure. And there being all sorts of hubs around the country, and yeah, people confidently working to really good schemes of work or whatever it is. Yeah. So you said on Insta, you know, when you, I think you put this post up the other day, didn't you, about the job and you were like, it feels like a good point for this to happen. And when we had a chat a few months ago, you were sort of saying like, yeah, this feel, 
good time for you personally you know why why is that just because it feels like you can put all these things you've learned into this massive challenge a little bit like you know i have been operating kind of solo which has been good and i get different people involved on different camps and different trips and i love the work i love coaching with people basically the surfers um but but i was but yeah i just sort of wanted this bigger involvement for a while and i've always you know i've always had good relations with with kind of all the national government bodies and the, the the scene but i've just haven't got involved when everything was voluntary just felt i couldn't quite do that but so when this came online i was kind of hopeful that i would would get it yeah and the whole interview process i quite enjoyed like the final one like at uk sport hq like reasonably big panel and big presentation and he i was really really nervous but i came out of it think I did all right in it obviously but I was like confident once I got going yeah and I just enjoyed that I was like man this is wicked to be sur- talking about surfing and getting questions about surfing in this what feels like an important sporting environment yeah like I'm into that and I've, I've got I think I've got the answers at this stage and I wanted as I came out of that and I was like even though I don't get it like I felt it just that process made us feel like actually Hasn't been a waste of time this last 15 years. I, I sort of feel like a bit of an expert in this. Yeah. Little, this little niche of what I'm doing. So what was your pitch? My pitch was, um, it was largely based on like, that I'm, I can do it <laughs> from like tomorrow sort of thing. Yeah. A little bit like a lot of the stuff I've sort of been doing and I've got a, had a lot of involvement, but my pitch was on, Got a real deep knowledge of what the where everyone is at and who the surfers are and who the industry is, the scene and all that. And what needs to happen is improvement and how are we going to do that? Essentially, it's like improvement. So not like I kind of want to change the culture of like, yeah, we're, we're good enough. Like, oh, if you just had one more wave, you would have got through and made it. And oh, if you know, we, we, we just need to get better and. It's not, that's not a negative, it's just identifying and I totally believe the surfers we've got at the moment are capable of doing that with and, the inputs. And, and your job title is Performance Pathway Manager, is that right? Yeah, so, yeah, it is. And it's really, really, really broad. So they employed two people. It's myself with that and then Gwen Spurlock and her title is Pathway Development Lead, which is essentially a bit more responsibility on in terms of like pulling the home nations together maybe what happens at the junior level and how it feeds all feeds in and assisting me um and it may well change what where where i sort of end up but like at the moment i definitely want to maintain doing some coaching and that's that's been accepted so i'm like dual rolling with a bit of that yeah definitely want to have an impact because i think i've got potential to have a good one on that side of things um but yeah the whole thing is about there's obviously like a sort of goal of like olympic success um but it's build it's long term like if if we don't qualify for paris this is some we're still here sort of thing yeah and it's developing that pathway so from a 10 super promising 10 year old how do we even find him or how do we help 
make him have access to that um, up to those 13, 14, 15 year olds, the whole scene and then our elite sort of crew. Yeah. And I was, I, I was quite, obviously the money's only come in from UK sport because of the Olympics. But that's not necessarily my like bang goal. So my, the way I see it, the healthy scene at that elite level is the WSL is kind of the pathway for, for all of that. And we, if we've got a regular supply or a regular intake of people on that Challenger series who are knocking on the door of World Tour uh, qualification, that's, that's also the same people that are way more likely to be. Yeah. How big a step is that for British surfing? Because I'm trying to think, I mean, you'll know more than me, but how many people have we actually had on the tour, Brits? On that top, top tour? Yeah. Just like Russell Winter? Just Russell, isn't it? And so the, like, that's an amazing story. And it's like, just fantastic, all of that. But it is a distant memory and it's not a clear pathway. Like our kids... Sure, he's like a total outlier and he's, you know, like, like, again, you know, like, Veach that we talked about earlier or, or early snowboarding pioneers like Leslie McKenna, for example, you know, who had to just work out a way of doing it themselves, didn't they? And with a combination probably of like talent, hard work, bit of luck, bit of backing, kind of managed to do that, totally get that point. But in terms of the standard of British surfing, you know, to get to a point like you t- where you're talking about, and you, you, you framed it like this originally, like it's about making British surfing as a whole you know, the old rising tide lift all boats thing, yeah. isn't it? You know, but there is a big gap there, right? To actually get get enough people in a position where they can be consistently on that Challenger tour and maybe even thinking about, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a big step up, right, for British surfing. Well, it is, but the, it is. It's got a little bit easier in terms of the sort of, even like your headspace of how you get there. In, ter- in the, basically you do your regional qualifying series so you just have to compete in Europe and there's certain blocks so it's it's cheaper to do that it's easier to work around like you could have you could function you could basically have a job and also do that sort of thing and then the top 10 on that basically go to the challenger series so like this last year Pat Langdon-Dark was in that top 10 right till the last couple of events so right. he's been one of the alternates so he's like super super close as a, as a sort of gauge um, but it is it is, it's not just a case of like making sure they do the events and then they're going to qualify. They do need some more inputs. Um, but, it, but also because they've all, like all of our current active competitive surfers have had, they've all done bits and bobs of coaching and stuff, but they haven't had much. So once we give them kind of anything, not just coaching, but S&C, and like support at events, logistical support. That's obviously it's all value added. Yeah, you kind yeah. of don't know. They're not yeah. going to get worse. Sure, no, <laughs> no, I, to- I, to- I totally get it. And there's so many, th- there's so many easy kind of wins, isn't there? Really, at this stage, I would have thought. You know, if you can just raise the kind of pr- level, like you've just described, like across yeah. the spectrum you're going to see pretty rapid improvements, aren't you? You know, you're going to see like a raising. I think so. And honestly, so we just did the world champs in California and there was no like groundbreaking result, but, um, but we did all right. Like 13th out of 51, like definitely some good results some good performances. 
But the most valuable thing is, honestly, we had a, we've, got a, we've got a good vibe going. And that was, we've, we had zero prep for this. It's pretty much, some of them were just met at the, out in California. Yeah. But someone started definitely. And like that, that's what I think I've got experience at sort of helping build this sort of units of kind of, kind of good vibe and going in the right direction. And that already will have impacted on the surface, like motivations. Yeah. Like they've seen, some of them have got the carrot of what's coming and the one part of it. Yeah, so I mean, surfing with a bit more intent, purpose, more the, fun, whatever it is. The parallel with snowboarding, I think, is a good one. I mean, up until probably 20 years ago, really, again, it was kind of your outliers that were in the, in the program. But then it took like Leslie and Hamish, you know, and, and a lot of people that they were working with to, to create a structure, basically, through which the promise, you know, if you think back to like Billy like 15 years ago he's a young kid you know what I mean so like for him to 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 be given the platform took a while yeah basically and you're you know what you're describing reminds me of conversations that I had with like Leslie and Hamish probably yeah like 16 years ago you know where it was quite a few cycles to go and and that's how so that was going to be my next question really like you mentioned so it feels like you don't you're not under as you see a huge amount of time pressure to deliver tangible results no, no tangible result in this context being a medal obviously yeah exactly no we're not and like actually the funding without getting into detail no get into details that's, that's okay no so i mean i'm interested it's like for progression sure. funding so we're not like we're not tasked with a world-class program at the minute yeah because we haven't got we haven't got what's been identified as likely olympians and and yeah medalists but the reality is of the qualification process is that it is possible for us to qualify next yeah. year and the year after. And not even just like a slim chance. So for example, this year's the one we just did in California, there was one spot available for the highest placed team. Yeah. So the highest placed men's team and high placed women's team got a spot. Now that isn't us. That wasn't going to be us. We don't have that like super, super strong depth. Like, um, Japan and America, they got those two spots. Yeah. But next year's one, the spots are allocated to the highest continent. So basically, we have to be the highest placed European at that event. Yeah. Now, actually, that's definitely achievable. Yeah. So having decided that, that that's achievable, and also there's going to be another four or five spots for the next bunch that haven't qualified at 2024, there is, there is a chance... There really is. So as long as there is a chance, then we'll work towards that aim. And that'd be success to, to have a, someone qualify at this point. Yeah, that would sure. be yeah. successful. And that would, I'm not super switched on, but that automatically clicks in all sorts of different funding. That's what I mean, because cause my, like my basic understanding is that, I mean, this, this debate comes along really publicly when the funding is awarded every cycle and you know you it'll be like basketball's been had their funding cut you know and and it's that whole argument about well they've got like a grassroots sport that a lot of people play but basically because because there's no medal prospects you're going to get your funding cut and then that's going to have an impact on that sport culturally across the country you know it's quite a well-worn argument you know and so you look at surfing in that context and 
And certainly you look at it in, in um, board sports, uh, well, sorry, winter sports at the minute. Thanks, mate. Because, um, you know, on the snow side, I believe downhills, just an Alpine have just had all their funding cut, um, which is causing like huge outcry. Thank you. And, um, and my understanding is that's just because like ultimately, and I'm probably putting this quite crudely and I'm sure there's people involved in this that if they're going to be listening, they're probably going like, this isn't how it works. But my crude understanding is that unless there's a, in however many cycles, a glimmer of like a progression path, like you've just said, whether it's qualification mm. and then ultimately medal prospects, like you're going to lose your funding at some point because they'll only give it so long. Have you been given any kind of indication of that or is it still no, very much yeah, like... Yeah, de definitely not. I've had none of that. There's been no... My read on it is there's been no kind of um, research or they haven't looked into it and gone, all right, these surfers are at this level, Dada, with this much support, we're probably looking at two cycles away. Or there's, there honestly has been none of that. So it's almost that's prob that'll come more and more online once, once we've got more intel and everything. Yeah. But, but no, it's all been, and even to the extent that this decision of like, Actually, I think we've got a chance to qualify in this one. That's sort of been, that's been like mine hours, like mine and like chatting with Gwen. So yeah, that if that's a chance, so then we do pool resources. Like if we really didn't think there was a chance there, then we wouldn't try to bring online stuff in the next eight month for that goal. Yeah. But so the first stuff we're gonna do is going to be towards this. 2023 and 2024 yeah. cycle rather than like actually let's go now with focus on the junior stuff for example yeah which i mean sounds really encouraging sounds like you've been because that's what you want to hear isn't it that basically they're giving you the the resources and platform to try and sort it out from a grassroots level i mean that's that obviously yeah, that, and obviously culturally that that's great if that's the reality of it yeah and like I mean, it's super early days, but so pretty much you got the position and it's like, right, bam, you've got, to, you've got to select a team, sort out all the logistics and produce a result at the, at, in California. Yeah. Um, and that took up sort of all of the time. Squeezed in a little holiday at Tyree as well. Um, but, so you know, we haven't got on with much other stuff. It's been busy, but... Um, but yeah, sorry, I'm losing track. <laughs> well, I'll go. I'll I'll go into another question. So this God. one came from Yvette, who you, who you will know, obviously, Yvette Curtis. Yes. Um, Great work up there. Yeah. North Devon. Yvette's question is: Let me find it. My phone was buzzing, so I've had to. I think it's one about like inclusivity, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Like. Um, we'd love to know how he plans to ensure the pathway will, will be accessible, inclusive and diverse to all potential athletes, not just the elite and those that have the financial means. Because that did strike me earlier when you were describing Surf Solutions, you said it was all private. Yeah. And clearly that is a, is a self-selector at yeah. that stage, isn't it? Can your parents afford it? And you've exactly. just described how, you know, your way in, which was very much like, I'm assuming you know it was a blaggy way wasn't it it was like you know how can you make your own luck and make that happen it yeah. wasn't it wasn't based upon having parents that had means you know so yeah it's a huge challenge isn't it like how 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 aware of a, a, a sort of uk sport slash british surfing even you know is that is that is that question even on the table it's it's not like it's not something we we were like 
pounded into yet, but of course, like, of course, it, of course, it will be. It's like the reality is, like, surfing. It, 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 it is like a sort of elitist, sort of wealthy person's sport at the minute. Like, you got to kind of live right by the beach, and yeah. if you're fortunate enough to have parents that can afford custom boards when you're young and coaching or whatever it is, then you stand a better chance. But in terms of the the pathway, so realistically, probably what's going to happen with us is we're going to start to bring stuff on board with this. Like, it's me and Gwen at the minute. Like, we don't have a huge staff or anything. We've got a lot of people offering help, etc. But we're, we'll focus on the elite stuff, the current elite, get that kind of function and get that going because there's a demon, there is a chance of qualifying for the Olympics, etc., etc. But the pathway to get to that, of course, we want to, there will be at some point different squads, like there'll be development squads and junior squads, but also some of the work, which is what Gwen is in particular going to pick up, will be tying in what happens with the home nations. So they still exist, obviously, and are yeah. still going to be totally prominent and taking the lead on a lot of stuff. Like m- most, if not all, the grassroots stuff will still be like Scottish Surf Federation, the Welsh Channel Islands, and the English. Yeah. And we'll, like, yeah, I guess try and feed in how. But we just haven't, re- to be totally honest, we haven't really had those conversations yet. Yeah. So it wasn't something that was discussed when you were like on the interview process or no, has been raised by them? Not, no, no, it wasn't like, I mean, no, not, it wasn't basically. Yeah. Another question that came up a couple of times was, uh, you know, wave pools. I'm sure you saw that. Yeah, wave pools. And how important they're going to be for British, you know, in this, in this kind of long game that you've outlined. Because they were, and, and it's actually quite related to um, a question that Leslie McKenna put in, which I'll, which I'll read at yeah. the same time, because it, it was really insightful. Leslie said, what does he think of the super strengths of surfers who grew up surfing in the UK that might help them shine in the long run? For example, in snowboarding, rail riding, rail riding and the passion of our snowboard scene have been our super strengths. So on that point, I think the rail riding things, I'm particularly thinking of someone like Jamie Nichols, you know, who I think went to two Olympics. And essentially, the found a big part of the foundation of his success as a snowboarder was his was his rail riding, which was definitely developed in a snow dome. Like you know, his yeah. his the fact that he could basically go to the snow dome and just repetitively bang those tricks out every session, hour after hour after hour, certainly gave him the foundations that first led to his professional career, and then saw him end up going to the Olympics. So, you know, wave pools, you imagine could end up fulfilling a bit of a similar role right you know is it, is it a way that you could use them to sort of play to strengths that we might have over here yes potentially and I, I've been up the wave a lot and I think it's it's definitely valuable and it's particularly good I think for like real little ones it's really good for what as soon as like little kids can paddle into their own little waves. That intermediate setting, I think's good yeah. for bit getting a base of like these foundations, which I touched on before. Like I would love to do that and just having, you could pump hundreds of kids out with, with the sort of good understanding and practicing that sort of good stuff in a super fun way in between 
good, nice coconut lattes there. <laughs> but um, but that's at the minute that's the only one. And like reality is, I'm for more elite pathway type of thing. M- more, way more excited by like what's happening in Waco and the new that new one in Brazil. So some of this other tech. So I would love to see more developments and I don't quite know what their capabilities are on the one in Bristol, but basically yeah, in that affords like the opportunities for like airs and that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So like I know that or I saw the post that the Wave Garden or the Wave Crew, I think they've got a license for like another five around the UK. Yeah, I think they're doing one in London, aren't they, next? And Yeah. Um I I think I heard chat of one in Edinburgh. Which is maybe. like mad positive. I just hope they have a they can have an arm of it, which is caters for the for the top end. Yeah. And likewise, initially I was like, oh, if, if there's five wave gardens, it probably means there's not going to be an American wave system machine yeah. like the no, one I, in Waco. So it, for me, if the, if we had one of those mad plungers, yeah, yeah, if we had one of these there, and that that would be a bit more exciting, maybe. But like you say, it's a it is a, it is a great foundational place, and for me, it's the obvious kind of route to cater for that diversity question i think because yeah. ultimately what you want to do is give people opportunities to try it don't you you know yeah. at, at this point you know if you're and especially if you're going to try and achieve these you know i mean the, the goals you're talking about i mean they're, they're kind of like three or four cycles really aren't they i think so you're talking like you know up to 20 i mean that's what it took in snowboarding definitely yeah. it took 20 years you know to get a medal um so i think it you're going to need to find surfers, aren't you? You know, at some point. So, and I just, I just think for me, it's like, a, it's quite interesting and it's a bit of a segue. You know, if you look at Bristol, like I've been to Bristol a lot, I've seen you down, down there a few times. It's still really white. You know, like if you, yeah, it's near yeah. one of the most multicultural cities in the country, Bristol. It's like literally in Bristol. Like, but it's, it's pretty much a sea of white faces when you go down there. So, so why is that? Like, how can you change that? Like it's, I kind of always think, you know, that argument like, well, no one's stopping them. Like, they, yeah, anyone can yeah. go outdoors. Anyone can go surfing. Like, clearly, there there are cultural things that, that are at play here. And I think, for me, that just seems like quite an obvious opportunity. Like you say, the elite end, probably not going to be helpful in terms of what you're trying to achieve. But at the at the, at the yeah. other end, like, it probably does have a place. No, you're totally right. And you're in, on touching on that, it needs something proactive, like the stuff, like Yvette doing it's not just um there we go yeah it need, yeah it needs some like proactive like what the stuff a vet's doing you know yeah not just exactly but it's expensive you know it's an expensive place to go for a day yeah. out to go surfing and also crucially if that is going to form a part of a pathway even into surfing that what's what's the link how does that link with actually going to the to the beach you know like yeah learning yeah. to surf in a in a wave pool what how does that cross over to actually doing doing it at the beach as well yeah so i had another i mean this one was very specific from a friend of mine dave blackwell who is a was a big one wasn't it who's a really he rips actually um lives in Mar. oh god what's in pembrokeshire anyway one of those little spots down there I was about to mangle the pronunciation, so I didn't bother. <laughs> um, anyway, he Dave says, what are the components of surfing's what it takes to win model? And then he, he went, 
on all national governing bodies have to put this model together to explain how they get people onto the podium. It's linked to their funding and it's usually stuff like VO2 max readings, bleep tests, etc. I once worked with the guy who did the model for Olympic boxing and the key factor in their model was being a beast, which broadly translated into being happy for someone to smack you in the head. <laughs> but I think his point is, you know, what is that? thing like is that something that you did does that ring any bells does that something that yeah like that's not again i think a bit like the coaching side of stuff that's not someone that's been established yet too early probably yeah like even on on sort of any level like i know in australia they've done there's they've done some research on like the strength and conditioning side of things and the requirements on the body but yeah crucial you know to to win at the top like that's one of the things is like there's a lot of like winners in surfing that like look really different and surf really different but what are in amongst that there are definitely like common themes and yeah for our guys like obviously like sound technique but that exposure to different waves is definitely going to become an issue i think it's an excellent place to grow up surfing but for taking it to the next level for sure they need time away and it doesn't need to be all around the world but in europe you know like touching a lot of stuff in portugal in france for example and those peer groups but like the waves as well and like in this next cycle so the next world champs is going to be in i in el salvador so we'll look to do like a training trip trip or trips there before that event yeah you know, little things like that we're going to be able to do straight away which will prove things we did have one question which was the classic i mean i replied saying ah the 1990s argument um it was basically a guy saying let's have a look having surfed in the olympics is like keeping a whale in a fish tank <laughs> you know it's basically like <laughs> and then i was like okay yeah nice one but you know here we are and he was like yeah but we should ignore it and not give it any oxygen kind of thing um which i do think personally it's probably 25 years a bit late for that one <laughs> but yeah. it seems to me that you're you know doing is it a bit more of a case of like i'd rather be in the tent try to influence it than you know yeah also i just think the whole like so far it doesn't feel like it's like olympics and everything like and i definitely have got the freedom to try and build a program and a pathway that picks up and supports people all the way and through yeah. like a definitely like a competitive journey but most of that's like the wsl which goes bam 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 then every four years there's a there's an olympics and obviously we're going for that and we know the pathway and the qualification events will be a focus and all that sort of stuff but i'm definitely not here british surfing isn't here just to create like olympic involvement that would be dangerous just to do that like wants to be a healthy a healthy scene like like exactly what I'm talking about, like Alice and Lucas, who've just done well in the junior events, it wants to be supporting and developing them. Yeah, maybe if there's like the sort of tick box so that they potentially can qualify for the Olympics, but it's a much more holistic thing than that. Yeah. You know, they'll be getting S&C, sports psych, all that sort of stuff, which will sit with them and live with them, rub off on all sorts of different aspects of their lives and others. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what's exciting. And like I say, I can see why, I mean, from my point of view, 
not that it particularly matters what I think, but I, it's just really nice to hear that, you know, like the, the fact that that seems to be like, use the word holistic, like the fact that that's the approach. I mean, I knew that would be the approach you were taking, obviously, like, but, but to hear that you kind of being backed to, to do that. And yeah, and it is really early days. Um, but uh, the, the support that I've had from like UK sport, is, it's just been really good. And uh, I mean, I've just been flooded with sort of little Zoom meetings and trying to get to meet people. And like the guys like Darren at skateboarding and some of the snowboarders, it's, it's been cool. And some of the non ones, like people on coaching, advising committees, and well, I haven't quite got it all in order yet, but essentially they're just like, well, they're excited that, wet surfing is part of this thing and yeah they're not no one's been telling me like you need to do this or yeah. you got to do this i've had a lot of real good advice from from people and essentially they're just sort of offering help and we don't quite know yet what help we need it's going to take a little bit of time but definitely there's going to be some things coming online in the next six months for sure and that first stuff is going to be the top end kind of squad yeah and then you know once we've got more time that'll filter down essentially you mentioned like in the note like early on how important you thought the kind of crew team community whatever you want to call it was yeah yeah presumably that's something you're also going to try and like, yeah that, definitely that, that insight and perspective because like that's the strength right you know going back to what leslie said that yeah that that kind of the uniqueness, I mean, this is where there is a real similarity with British surfing, British snowboarding, British skateboarding, like, because it's a bit tougher, because you got to work a bit harder, like, yeah. to, it, that that closeness is just something that they all have in common, isn't it, you know? Exactly, like, and that goes back to, like, why that Northeast crew that I was part of was so successful, it's because of the crew, Yeah. and, like, the Welsh, like, Alice, Pat and Logan, are like doing incredible. The improvement they've made over the last three years has been amazing. And it's, it's like, no one would look at a map and go, yeah, let's, Wales is the best place to, to, do, to do that. But, yeah. but it's, the, it's the unit and the drive that they've sort of got together. So I'm definitely big on that. Like almost at the top of my philosophy is like relationships. And I said this to the surfers in California. Like that's like my key thing. Yeah. And... For got good relationships at every level for the staff that are involved, obviously the surfers amongst themselves. All the good times are like twice as good and any problems get, we've got a team, you know, a team to sort of deal yeah, with yeah. that because there's going to be issues along the line. But my number one sort of rule initially was just the people that I didn't maybe have such good relationships with, just trying to, trying to work on that. I see that as a priority for the whole the whole program and like the UK sport people and the guys at skateboard and all of that sort of stuff. So relate good relationships is the, is the sort of key for all of this, I think. And that's where you can also like, like we were talking about earlier, like work really closely with your, your peers in skate and, and in GB snow sport, like to, to kind of, you know, foster that, can't you? Cause, yeah. cause it, it is a strength and it is something that will go a long way, I think. And there will be like difficult, decisions that feel like there hasn't been any yet but i'm sure there will be down the line but likewise if if there's good relationships that's just sort of easier to navigate as well there's less pressure on yeah on on the situation yeah all right mate i'm gonna give you one more 
and it's a complete change of topic and it is from our mutual friend Ollie um, is Alexander Isaac the new Alan Shearer <laughs> uh, he started off pretty good didn't he I do love footy um, and I sort of love what's happening with Newcastle at the minute I was going to ask you about that how do you feel about that Oh, the, new lo- the new lottery winners. I know. It, it, some of it doesn't sit that comfortably. Obviously, we're talking about the whole century being owned by the Saudi state. But I hated Mike Ashley so much. I literally detest the guy. That I try and put it at his door. Yeah. His final act yeah. was to like, sell us out to these, this crew. But we've got loads of money. We've got a really good manager who is spending it wisely and mm. looking like he's doing it all for the long term and um good times good times and yeah it is good times yeah it's harder to get a ticket now which is a little bit annoying yeah i mean all sport is riven with hypocrisies when you look at that conversation isn't it it is the world cup's gonna be in qatar it is <laughs> I, I mean, know. you know and yeah that's a different podcast, isn't it? I think yeah. it's good to see us winning, though. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm, I'm a United fan, and I, I, uh, I'm actually quite dreading playing you lot because I think that's going to be quite a good indicator of of the, the the reality these days. Let's just say. Yeah. 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 Hey, thanks, mate. Thanks for doing it. No worries. Thank you. And uh, yeah, all right. I'm going to stop it there. So there you go. That was me and Joel, and I hope you enjoyed it. I would really love to know what you thought about that episode and the issues we discussed, um, because it is thought provoking, and um, it is complicated and it is nuanced. And I think it's way too simplistic just to be like either fuck it off or ignore it or or back it. Um, and I also think the idea that it's a done conversation and that we're all happily coexisting is also not true. I think I think there are challenges. Um, I mean, there's challenges in the endemic culture. I mean, just look at the slagging that the WSL gets off every time they release a new schedule. So clearly there's issues in the Olympic culture. Um, One thing I will say, though, which is a counterpoint, is that one, and this was a point that um, Corey Schumacher put to me a few years ago when we were chatting about the Olympics. And that's also an episode really worth listening to if you've not checked it out. Corey basically said, you know, say what you like about the Olympics, but it's going to keep the culture honest because we're quite behind as a culture in terms of um, the way we handle topics of, you know, sexuality, diversity, inclusion, um, whereas like the mainstream sporting glare means that we will have to address those inconsistencies in our culture, which is another theme of the podcast, which I discuss very frequently. Um, that I thought that was a completely valid point. And uh, yeah, like I say, Corey had a great insight into that. So anyway, if you want to discuss it, um, or leave comments or ask questions or, or whatever the best place to do that is over at my Substack. this is housekeeping corner now lookingsideways.substack.com where i've got the comments turned on um, and as i mentioned fairly frequently these days is a lively respected respectful even and engaged community over there which you're very welcome to join you could also follow me on instagram at we look sideways because i'm still fairly active on there although yeah sometimes i'm like what am i doing on here but i'm still on there um so yeah, head on over, sign up, Substack. Incidentally, the nice people at Substack recently picked me out as one of their favourite sites of 2023. Uh, a bit like getting a Vimeo staff pick, I think, which was very nice and which saw me the lucky recipient of many hundreds of new subscribers. So that was good. You can sign up via my homepage, www 
www.wearelookingsideways.com or via that aforementioned lookingsideways.substack.com. Um, Substack, I'll basically do a newsletter every week or so, 10 things. I also have guest blogs, articles by myself, open thread debates. It's good. Go have a look. Um, they also do paid subscriptions. And I'm probably going to go down that route at some point. As listeners will know, especially listeners that have been here for a while, the ongoing exploration of different ways to fund the podcast is a theme that is consistent. Um, I've tended to just focus on interesting projects and collaborations rather than the classic podcast ads and subscriptions model. But the Substack model is one I'm quite tempted to try. It means you can't do ads and you just have to turn on subscriptions. And I was kind of brought into this like Substack incubator program over the summer where they're obviously trying to pick people and encourage them to turn on paid subscriptions because that is effectively their business model. Um, but it was quite interesting because I was you were kind of matched up with people that have got successful subscription models on Substack. And I think one of the things that stuck struck me was one of the people I spoke to just said, look, you know, at the end of the day, if you've got an engaged community, they're just like supporting you. And if you turn it on, they will, you'll be surprised at how many people just see it as a chance to like back what you do. So we'll see. On that note, I do feel duty bound to plug Looking Sideways Volume 1. It's been a while since I plugged it. But, you know, Christmas is approaching. That's the book by me and Owen Tozer, which we published last year and which I'm just saying would make a great festive gift for the Looking Sideways loving friend in your life. Um, we've got a couple of hundred copies left from the second print run, I believe. Um, I doubt we're going to do another one. When they're gone, they're gone. Uh, you can find that and maybe even purchase your own copy by heading to my website, www.wearelookingsideways.com and clicking the tab marked book. So yeah, like I said at the top, definitely needed a bit of a break this summer. It's all been getting a bit hectic. I mean, it's all good and it's, it is world's tiniest violin time. It's basically because... My agency, All Conditions Media, is going really well, and that now numbers 18 people, I believe. Um, the podcast has also obviously been going well this year with various interesting projects. Natural Selection springs to mind, the stuff I've been doing with DB. And I just didn't have any free time, I realized. There's only so often you can say yes to things. I'm also not somebody that, like, you know, I'm not a life hacker, let's put it that way. So um, I drink too much. Um, and I don't do enough exercise at points and if I'm on the road, those habits can creep in and they definitely impact my mental health. So I kind of realized alongside that, that the usual ways of coping and managing this that I usually can fall back on weren't serving me that well, let's say. So I recognized a break was needed and like I mentioned, took a couple of trips and since then I've been slowly getting back into it. As the winter hoves interview, I've got a few more interesting things on the go. And I should really try and make sure it doesn't happen again, but we'll see. Feast and famine and all that. I'm back on the selection committee for natural selection, um, which is exciting. We've already had our first meeting. Don't think I'm going to be presenting or commentating this year, unfortunately. Although I do think myself and Owen are going to try and get out there. Um, I've also been asked to be on the jury for this year's London Surf Film Festival which I'm very much looking forward to I did it last year it was a privilege I love Demi and Chris what they do is incredible a great institution of British surfing and a, like a true honour to be part of that really um, we're chatting about doing some kind of live workshop based around the book for me and Owen which uh, yeah we'll you know obviously I'll talk about on here 
I've also been doing a lot of writing. I've got stories in White Lines, Pleasure, The Snowboard Journal. I've been doing a lot of writing for the Substack, which I've been enjoying. I hosted a live panel at Nelson's Tour de Test Valley, which seemed to go down really well. So much so that I'm chatting to Calm about maybe taking that on the road next year. Um, and even more excitingly, at the time of speaking, it's the 17th of October today, I'm chatting to my friends at Patagonia about a trip to Ventura to do a Type 2 and NorCal Omnibus which would be great looking at maybe end of November for that. I'll also be at Kendall if anyone's going to be around. Always enjoy that one. So yeah, slowly getting back into it. Big thanks to everybody who continues to support what I do. I do appreciate it. I don't take it for granted. Thanks for all the messages which really, uh, you know, help me keep it up really. I'll be back soon with another episode. But in the meantime, a big nice one.